Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Many of us are at home and indoors more now with concerns about the Omicron variant. And perhaps you feel like you have watched everything that has streamed in the past two years. Well, if you missed a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch that came out last May. I highly recommend The Courier. It's a spy thriller based on the true story of the English businessman Greville Wynne, an unlikely candidate for high-level espionage in Russia at the height of the Cold War. Later this hour, I'll talk with the director, Dominic Cook, about this fascinating story, the outstanding cast that brings it to the screen, and a gorgeous soundtrack written for The Courier. First, if you've lived in the South for a while, you may well be familiar with The Bitter Southerner, an online publication that was created with the sole intention to deep bunk stereotypes of Southerners, as well as the region itself. Chuck Reese co-founded The Bitter Southerner in 2013 and left to start a new endeavor last year, Salvation South. Along with his wife, Stacy Reese, the two created this new online publication, to address today's Southern narrative. They join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hey, Lois. Hello, Lois. Chuck, let's start with the bitter Southerner. In the eight years since it was launched, did you think the journal would be as far-reaching in persuading people to think differently about Southerners and Southern life? I'm not sure that we expected the reach to be as broad as it got over the years. But, you know, as it grew, we certainly appreciated that happening. I personally felt that we needed to begin addressing something else. You said that we were created with the purpose of debunking stubborn stereotypes. And that's absolutely true. We were 
created for that specific purpose. And here we are, you know, eight years later. And if you look at the South and the problems that it has, stereotypes are kind of the least of our problems. Hmm. How so? Well, I, th- I think it's the division that's been sown, you know, all over the country, but particularly in many ways in our region. And what I wanted to do with Salvation South was put together a publication that at least could serve as a model for civil conversation and would bring, you know, voices from different sides of the table to bear on the discussion about whatever issue it might be, whether it's race and reconciliation. And, you know, one of the things that we decided to do was to take on weighty topics like that, but also let people write about their mama's pimento cheese recipe. (laughs) Food does tend to unite us, doesn't it? Food and music, I like to think. That's absolutely true. You know, what we do and talk about in the kitchen and the music we play and talk about, they're absolutely things that bind us together, no matter what other differences that we have. We told people to think of Salvation South as a big old house party. <laughs> Stacy, what were your thoughts about creating this publication together with your husband? Well, this is basically the icing on the cake of what we've been doing already. I have a tiny red barn. It's a two-story barn in my backyard where I produce Southern-made goods, tea towels, napkins, coasters, aprons, and things like that. And I was making dish towels for the Bitter Southerner. So, you know, being able to work with Chuck, dealing with the issues that are facing not only our country, but, you know, what's closest to my heart is the South. You know, I'm born and raised Southern and seeing the incivility and uh, the discord that we've got amongst neighbors in a region that is known for neighborliness really broke my heart. And so I'm just as passionate about Chuck and bringing a new voice where people who disagree can come together over apple cobbler. And my apple cobbler is pretty good. <laughs> I would love to taste it. Where does, where does peach enter this Southern picture? My apple cobbler recipe, you just substitute peaches, okay. and it works out great. So. Okay. Stacy. indeed, you are the curator for this publication's merchandise, having started with The Bitter Southerner, which has such wonderful T-shirts with slogans like, Abide No Hatred. And practice radical empathy. I see a lot of those. Well, I also have another company called Down South House and Home. And I have created a line of napkins and coasters and tea towels that are separate from what I did with the Bitter Southerner. So right now we have our city coaster collection. So if you if you live in a large southern city, we probably have a coaster or a napkin dedicated to your city. And I'd like to bring a fresh modern twist to Southern design with Salvation South. Down South House and Home is clean, classic Southern designs that, you know, a lot of what you see in gift stores are snarky or tacky or downright lewd. 
And with Down South, I was hoping to make uh, products that would go in any kitchen that I could give to my mama without making her blush. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so I use a lot of traditional design with those Down South towels. With Salvation South, I would like to bring some, you know, maybe some more funkier logos with traditional Southern thoughts, you know, a bit more of the contrast of where the South is. The South is a very modern region with very modern thoughts, but we still, we love a lot of traditions of the South. So I would like to bring those traditional concepts into a more modern visual representation. Any humorous slogans for now? Well, I think we will have some slogans as we go, they will develop. But, you know, one of the things that that I am a little more focused on, it's like, you look at the slogan-based t-shirts that the Bitter Southerner has, and it's almost as if those shirts are challenging you to a fight, you know? It's like, you know, if you don't think the same way that I do, you know, I don't want anything to do with you. And I think we can come up with some shirts and slogans that have to do with the things that unite us. You know, if we've got one person who thinks one way, wearing a t-shirt that says, you know, I love my mama's biscuits or something like that, walking down the street, they run into another person who also happens to love his or her mama's biscuits. You know, they start up a conversation and maybe those people were coming from different sides of an issue, but they've got something to unite them. It exposed itself through that t-shirt. That's kind of the way we're thinking about that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Chuck and Stacy Reese, founders of the new online publication, Salvation South. You mentioned issues specific to the South beyond race relations. In a sense, what you said about the country, isn't that just what we see in the South writ large? I mean, this divided nation of ours, many people who simply don't want to hear the other side. How Southern is that? Well, I think it's about the context in which a conversation like that happens. In other words, you know, if two people can come together in a context that has nothing to do with their differing political or or social views, they're often able to, to talk together in a way that you might not expect them if you knew what their political and social views were. You know, and another thing, too, is that I think Stacy and I both think, and this is one of the reasons that that drove us to do this publication, is that we know there are people out on the extremes on the left side and people out on the extremes on the right side. But we think there are way more people in the middle who really are overlooked by the mass media and who aren't as vocal on social media, who would love the opportunity to have civil conversation with people who don't believe exactly what they believe. You know, and I think the very first story that we ran, which was called But I Have Hope by a North Carolina writer named Russell Worth Parker, was 
about exactly that. And, you know, I would recommend that people go to the stories page on our website and read that piece because it, it will give you a really good idea of what our attitude is toward issues like that. So how do you hope to engage that large group of people in the middle who may provide more hope for us? Well, with writing like that and good storytelling, that's what we want to do because no one can resist a story about Mama's community cheese or whatever. Peach power. You know, I think on both sides, on the extremes of both sides, we may not have gotten the full story about every issue that's causing division in this country. And, you know, when I think about Salvation South, I think about the Cajun Navy. You know, when there's a hurricane that hits Texas or Louisiana, there's a bunch of country boys getting in their trucks or their coolers and their fishing boats. And they're going out and they're rescuing people. And they don't ask people who they voted for when they're pulling them out of their second story window. And, you know, when push comes to shove, we're all good people. And I think we can be reminded of that one story at a time. That is what we hope for. Chuck, you have said that you discovered a quality particular to the South in how much all people who are born and raised here want to celebrate our common culture. Yeah. How will Salvation South help achieve that desire? You mentioned the great stories. How do you plan to reach more people with these stories? Well, I think it's a matter of time for us. People then tend to think of my previous publication as something that had kind of overnight success, and that's not really the truth. That you know, we were kind of doing it in the darkness for the first year and a half, you know, when we just volunteer writers and we were doing the best we could on, you know, but I think what we're doing here is sort of building a little at a time by adding one story a week. You know, we publish four stories a week and it can be about a long list of topics that fit within Salvation South where, you know, people get to see the culture of the South in a way that amuses them Mm -hmm. or touches their heart. We've got a piece coming up called The Casserole, and it's about the thing that happens in the South where if someone in your community or your family passes away, people bring casserole, you know, under the assumption that you're going to be too busy or too tired or too aggrieved to, to cook and that if you don't eat them, you can put them in your freezer and bring them out for your family, you know, weeks or months down the line. You know, that's a practice that everyone down here engages in. I think that if we find the things that all of us engage in that represent our love for each other, and, and these are all things that are embedded in our culture. Well, that's, you know, they're, they really are. Our stories will demonstrate what the best of Southern culture is, and they'll bring people together around it. And we're also putting calls out for writers to send stories about civility and kindness and you know, good manners, you know, your family memories about 
good manners. And that could be your mama scolding you about church or, you know, how you saw your daddy show some kindness to somebody who was less fortunate than your family. And I think getting people to remember what was good when times were divided back then, there were, you know, there was, there were acts of kindness and civility through all the eras of division in the South. And so we would like people to send in stories of, you know, something, something that they remember that was an extraordinary act of kindness that they saw growing up in the South. Stacy, you mentioned church. Certainly our region is known for religiosity and I wondered how intentional the title of your publication is in terms of referencing religion, that being salvation. We knew that some people would take the name in that sense, but we tend to think of it more in terms of the second definition that you will find in the Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary, which is freedom from ignorance. The thing about it is, is that I don't mind it prompting thoughts of religion in people, because one of the things that we swore we would not do at the Bitter Southerner was cover religion. You know, there's the old saw in the South about never talking about politics or religion at the dinner table. But, you know, in Salvation South, we intend to talk about religion because one of the things that you find if you start looking at you know groups on the ground that are trying to bridge the lines of division that we've drawn for ourselves many of them are faith-based there's some that are in the christian faiths you know there are some you know that are based in, in judaism there are some that are based in islam you know, we want to cover those things. In fact, we have an upcoming piece by an Episcopal priest who's going to make this argument. And so we invite that kind of thing in because we want to bring in a group of writers and a group of readers who are a true representative of what we see going on in the South. Chuck and Stacy Reese, founders of Salvation South, the new online publication. You can find more information about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll dive into the world of British spycraft and listen back to my interview with the film director, Dominic Cook. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. 
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you missed The Courier when it came out last spring, I highly recommend this film. It's a spy thriller based on the captivating true story of the English businessman Greville Wynne. Benedict Cumberbatch plays the title role with a superb cast directed by Dominic Cook. When the director joined me last June via Zoom, he explained why the story of Greville Wynne is relatively unknown. At the time, it was a really major news story, especially in the UK. And I think there were various reasons why it sort of fell away. And one of them was that Greville Wynne was a salesman. He was a guy who was selling factory equipment to the Eastern Bloc. And so the uh, CIA and MI, MI6 had a uh, contact, a, a very high-powered contact in the USSR who wanted to sort of get information out, military information out. And they'd had some disasters with operatives, so they wanted a civilian, so they chose him. And what happened was, once the whole mission was finished and he came back, he he'd lost all his business, a lot of his business. He sort of started to present himself as a bit of a sort of semi-celebrity, wrote some books and started talking a lot about the missions that he'd been on, or the mission, this one mission actually. He made quite a lot of stuff up, but MI6 essentially got very fed up with this and said to him, if you don't shut up, we're going to take away the pension that we've <laughs> agreed to give you. And so he sort of did shut up. And they, because they weren't best pleased with him, they didn't push the story anymore. And it sort of fell out of the public realm. And he sort of went back to a, a sort of quiet civilian life. And I think that's got a lot to do with why it all sort of disappeared. Because Brits of a certain age know who he was, i.e. those people who were sort of adults at the time. And anyone younger than that really has no idea who he was. Well, the film brings out how perfectly ordinary Wynne appeared, which is what made him an ideal recruit for MI6 and the CIA. What drew you to this script? Well, I sort of, I mean, initially it was just a very instinctive response to the quality of the writing and storytelling. I had no idea about this story, but I... I think there's this sort of warmth to the writing. And I said to Tom O'Connor many times, who wrote the script, that this story couldn't really be written by a Brit. Mm. I'm talking sort of dreadful stereotypes, but but I think the fact it's written by an American, it sort of gives it a warmth and a sort of emotional heart that is often, I think, missing from spy dramas. And I think that's the thing that really appealed to me because the film is a lot about sort of friendship, loyalty, and in a way, the cost of espionage for those people involved. And, there's a sort of heroic element to that. When you look at what people who have been involved in, in these kinds of missions, you know, how they had to sort of lie to their families, the sacrifices they made to their sort of intimate lives were immense. And I've never seen a film that really got into that at a very human level. And I, I really appreciated that. I have a wife and a child. Either of you have a family? Oh, no. Don't suppose you could tell me about that. Not a lot you can tell me about, is there, Helen? 
James. I can tell you we both put ourselves in harm's way when necessary, and this is terribly necessary, Gribble. Might I suggest you find someone who's suited for it? I think for me, I always want to be sort of moved. I know you directed Benedict Cumberbatch in a production of Richard III. Mm -hmm. Would you describe working with him and his approach to taking on the role? Yeah, he's, I mean, I've worked with him. Yeah, I've worked with him on Richard III, but I also did some theatre with him back, back in the day. And I sort of watched him grow as a sort of in stature, but also in skill over the years. And he's very thorough in his preparation. But I think what I love most about him is that he is actually an incredibly intuitive actor and he responds very much in the moment to what is in front of him. So in terms of film, that's brilliant because you pick up all the sort of choices that happen in the moment and he trusts them and he sort of just goes with his gut. And it's very exciting to be around because you never quite know what you're going to get. And I mean that in a good sense. I mean, you could interpret that sort of behaviour as being, and in some instances, I think it is sort of unpredictable in an unhelpful way, but he's always sort of working within the framework of the scene and exploring what it has to offer moment to moment. And that is so great for a director because he's giving you options and it allows you to have something to respond to. So that's the sort of, for me, the thing that gives him such an edge. What you've said reveals a great deal about your process as a director, which sounds very collaborative and appreciative of an actor's input. I know some directors would not relinquish control in that way, but you think a performance and ultimately a film is better for it. Is that correct? I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, it's a director's responsibility to set up a sort of framework for the choices that the actor makes, to give them as much freedom as they need to do their work well, but also to sort of guide them and give them some sort of, if you like, goalposts to sort of land in. And I think that's what I like to do. I like to give actors structure. I mean, I think if you're doing certain types of movie, if you're doing a, a very sort of visually specific sort of effect, sort of a sci-fi special effects type thing. Precision in certain way areas is really, really important. Sometimes I sort of ask for that precision if it's necessary, but I just basically believe you sort of go further when you're collaborating, when you're sort of working organically together with another person, you're sort of more than the sum of your parts. So I, I try and allow that to happen as much as I can. Please talk about the role of Oleg Penkovsky and the actor who plays him. He is marvellous. Oh, well, I'm glad you liked him. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his. His name is Mirab Ninidza, and he's from Georgia in the Caucasus. I'd seen him in a TV series called McMafia, where he's playing a sort of villainous, you know, the baddie of the whole thing. And he was magnificent, I thought. I'd, I'd never seen him before. Uh, he was magnificent. And we went off to Russia, to Moscow, to meet with Russian-speaking actors, because there are some roles that we just sort of needed Russian-speaking actors for, and one of them was Penkovsky. And um, we saw some absolutely incredible talents over there. And initially, when we met Mirab, we saw him for another role. We saw him for the KGB guy, but he was so great that we asked him to come back. And I mean, he's just a joy to work with. You know, he's super experienced. He's done everything, but has is pretty unknown in the West, although his English is actually really, really good. And um, so he was uh, really fantastic to work with, really thorough. He's got a great sense of humour. 
he sort of not only gave a lot on screen, and the character is, again, another complex guy. He was a war hero, Penkovsky, so, and he had a huge ego, but he also had a sense of sort of trying to do the right thing. And I mean, he was motivated in sort of taking secrets out of the USSR by both altruistic reasons and selfish reasons. On one hand, you know, he was trying to prevent a nuclear war. And as many know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is as close as we've ever come to nuclear war as a, as a planet. But he also was very angry with the Soviet system because they thwarted him and they'd actually killed his father, who was a, a white Russian who's a czarist. So it needed an actor of quite a sort of extensive range to cover all of that. And Mirab was that. And he was also a sort of very benign and positive presence on set because he looked after the Russian actors who came on board and sort of made sure that they were in the right place. And, and that sort of just helped the process hugely. So yeah, I mean, I'd love to work with him again. He's really remarkable. What if I get caught? You won't. You don't know that. They'd execute me, correct? Not if they thought you're just a courier, that you took packages but didn't know what was in them. They would hold you to trade for one of theirs. For how long? A couple of years. Oh, just a couple of years, rotting in some Russian gulag. They will not catch us. The KGB will have no idea. Listen, I'm better at this than they are. Fine, but I'm not. I think that what's evident early on is these two men, the characters of Greville Wynne and Oleg Penkovsky, genuinely like one another. And on one level, it's a beautiful story of friendship. Would you speak about that aspect? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, that was very clear in the first draft that I read of the script. And it's actually true. I think everything I've done, everything I've researched and sort of read around this story confirmed that there was a very strong bond between these two men. And I think it was partly intensified by the fact that everything they were doing, they were sort of doing in secret and you know, even their wives didn't know what was going on. So their bond was sort of strengthened by that. But I think they were actually... In some ways, they were hugely different because, as you said earlier, Greville Wynn was sort of actually a very ordinary guy. Although when you get close to anyone, they're never ordinary. <laughs> Once you look at their lives, no one is ever any ever really ordinary, but, but relatively. And Penkovsky was a war hero. He'd been decorated 13 times. He was instrumental in keeping the Nazis out of Kiev, which was very strategic place. He was quite well, very well connected, actually, in Russian society. He sort of married the daughter of a general and military people are very, very significant in, or they still are actually, but they were very significant in the Soviet system. So on one level, one guy was a sort of real hero by anyone's standards, the other was this sort of average Joe kind of guy. But actually they were both quite similar in that I think they sort of both felt thwarted by the societies that they lived in. Yeah. They sort of recognised that in each other. And they both liked to drink. You know, they were both <laughs> sort of bon viveurs. They liked women, they liked drink, etc., etc. So there were these sort of aspects of their personalities that were quite similar, quite linked. And they, you know, they really, they really connect and um and win, you know, made huge sacrifices to try and help and save Penkovsky later on. Penkovsky asks Greville Wynn, can you hold your alcohol? And Gwyn replies, it's my one true gift. I think <laughs> I love that part. I also loved the scenes where each of the men take 
the other to experience their idea of culture. <laughs> the first night, Greville Wynn is taken to see the Bolshoi, and Penkovsky brings him to this production of Cinderella. I couldn't help but feel like that fairy tale ballet in the beginning bode well. I mean, sort of set the idea of a happy ending. And a later ballet they attend is Swan Lake, which impresses upon them, at least one sees from their expressions. This may not have a happy ending. Revel Wynn decides if he got to see the Bolshoi, he should take the Russian delegation to the West End. And you did a fantastic job with recreating shows that were popular. Then you see a marquee for The Sound of Music, and they do the twist popular dances. Was that fun for you? It sure seemed like fun for everyone on screen. Yeah, it was great fun. Yeah. And, and you know, there were ways in which we tried to sort of subtly link their worlds using colour and so on. And, and, and this was one of those moments where we really wanted to show the difference. You know, that high culture in the Soviet Union was where it was at and foreign dignitaries that they were very sort of important were taken to the Bolshoi Ballet. And it was at that point, especially in the early 60s, sort of unlike anything on earth. And, and when they when the Bolshoi came to the UK, I don't know, they must have come to the States too, actually, at that time. But when they came to the UK in the early 60s, it was a sort of sensation because no one had ever seen anything like it. The sort of discipline of the dancers and so on was sort of in a world of its own. Yeah, and of course, in London, you've got the very first stages of what we think of as the 60s, you know? I mean, in 61, 62, the 60s were not the 60s we think of as the 60s. It was still pretty sort of guarded and Edwardian in many, many ways. But yeah, you got the beginnings of that sort of flourishing of nightlife and so on, and more hedonistic element of the 60s culture. Yeah, no, we had a great, we had great fun, except I have to say that there was a bit of a mix up on the day we did the twist scene and we had to end up getting people from the office, the production office, to dress up in 60s outfits because we didn't have enough people. Oh my goodness. And so there was that one of those sort of last minute things sort of begging people to be in the scene. But it was, no, it was really good fun to do. And actually a lot of it was sort of improvised and Benedict is the most brilliant improviser. I mean, he always comes up with crazy stuff in the moment. He comes up with brilliant lines and all sorts of things. So it was fun to shoot. Yeah, it was great fun. Dominic Cook, director of The Courier, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. (laughs) 
City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The Courier is a Cold War spy thriller based on the true story of Greville Wynn, an unlikely hero played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Let's return to more of my interview with the film's director, Dominic Cook. All of the actors are outstanding. Rachel Brosnahan is very well known to American audiences, largely from her work in TV. Would you talk about her character? I read that it was really a composite. Yeah, that's correct. There's a composite of actually three people in that character. There were two CIA handlers, quite senior, who were both guys, who were the real people who did that job. We decided to make a female character. There's a very, very important woman in this story who we couldn't sort of tell her story because we just didn't have the screen time. And she was a British woman called Janet Chisholm who was married to a a diplomat living in Moscow. And when Wynne wasn't going in, she would meet with Penkovsky and smuggle stuff into the British embassy so it could leave sort of in diplomatic bags and come back to Britain. So she was a very important sort of another sort of hero. So we want to sort of honour the fact there was this woman playing this really important role in the story. And there were women in the CIA at this point, but any woman in a workplace in the early 60s and I'm told by my female friends and colleagues that this still operates now, that in order to get anything done, the woman would have to sort of pretend to be less smart than she was and make the guys think that they'd had all the ideas. And that was sort of written into the script. And it was really interesting because it's another sort of form of subterfuge, if you like, within the story, because the story is all about sort of people pretending to be other things. So it sort of added to that. And I'd seen the first few episodes of Mrs. Maisel and thought that I just fell in love with Rachel immediately, sort of thinking she was so bright. We went out to her and she was really taken with the script, particularly that sort of element of the character sort of playing this strategy in order to get her way and having to be very sophisticated. And uh, yeah, she was again a pleasure to work with. It was Penkovsky's idea. You're perfect. You're a civilian, so the KGB won't be watching. You'll be in and out of Moscow anyway to set up contracts. You still won't know any specifics. You'll just be a courier. Just a courier? For Russian sea. I, I can't believe you're bloody serious. We've gone over it with Penkovsky. We believe the risk to you is minimal. And we'll pay you. Did you see her in House of Cards in the American version? I did, yeah. She was brilliant in that. Oh, yeah. I thought she yeah. was stunning. And yeah. I think that was my introduction to her. And it was it was a tragic role, a very heavy role she mm. took on. So her versatility is in full view with the transition to Mrs. Maisel. And in this role, I see what you mean about having to hold back and let the men thinking they are really making the decisions, but not without asserting herself a little bit. Oh, that's right. The other thing that was going on at the time, which again is borne out by the research I did, is that there was this interesting sort of sort of rivalry between the CIA and MI6, which is all to do with the history of the two countries. And so CIA, obviously the US is hugely expanding its international influence at this point, had, has been doing so for, for several decades. 
And the UK, you know, there was this sort of snobbery that the UK had the best networks internationally, incredible sense of sort of superiority. So there's a sort of game going on between the CIA and MI6, where actually CIA are sort of calling the shots really for most of the, of the mission, but are making, <laughs> are having to sort of appear to be respectful so that MI6 felt that they were having all the sort of key decisions. And, and again, so, you know, there's a sort of duality with all of that. And, and she was brilliant at sort of playing that deference whilst absolutely having a sense of where she wanted them to go and leading them there without them even realising that she was leading them there. When the work of the career begins. Top secret military documents being smuggled out of the USSR. The tone shifts. And I think that's when we see Greville Wynne's character transform in particular. Dominic, I have to tell you, it brought to mind Schindler's List. Does that seem odd to you? Well, I'm extremely flattered because it's an absolute masterpiece. But no, I'm interested to know why. Was that well, sort of tonal seriousness of it? or Well, certainly some of that. But I guess having read Thomas Keneally's book mm-hmm. and then seen Spielberg's film, I was struck by how an ordinary person can become heroic. That in some ways, maybe the greatest heroes come to that by accident, or at least unwittingly, and then they rise to Mm -hmm. this summit of heroism. And really, as portrayed in The Courier, that's what Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal and Greville Wynne's character conveyed to me. Well, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I get that parallel. And uh, I'm very flattered by the parallel, but I get it. And I think I think it's absolutely right. I think we don't none of us know what we have within us until we're sort of tested. And there are these people who have potential within them to put others first in a really meaningful way and put themselves on the line at the same time. And uh, yeah, Greville Wynne is like that, absolutely. Once you sort of got a grip on what was happening and grew in confidence, he did something that gave his life meaning. And I think for me, the end of the film, whilst there's a huge amount of sadness in it and a sort of fragility in him, I sort of hope to get that across, that he starts the film sort of in this sort of cynical mode of midlife crisis. Is it all worth it? What's the point? I mean, he's got a lot to be thankful for on one level. He's a comfortable man. He's got a a son and a a marriage and, you know, lots of things that are in a business that's going well, that sort of thing. But uh, there's a sort of emptiness, a slight meaninglessness to his life. And then by the end of it, he certainly paid a big price, but he's really done something that will make anyone proud to achieve. And I think I think that, that is an important part of the film. Another important part of the film, and I have to say an essential part of the tone and action for me was the music. It's fantastic. I looked up the composer, Abel Korsanyavsky, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. It, it, it sounds like Prokofiev, right, yeah. but it's not derivative. And did you engage him? Yeah, I did, and uh, I'm really glad I did. I mean, I 
listened to a lot of composers and um, we hadn't worked together before. But I sort of wanted, uh, Prokofiev was, was, was really present in my thinking because actually the one area of sort of culture that the Soviets allowed to flourish was classical music. I mean, a lot of the writers uh, had, were dissidents and had to smuggle their writing out. The theatre wasn't, there was a lot of good theatre directors, but in terms of playwrights, there was very little at the time. But there were some amazing sort of uh, classical pieces of music at that time. And, um, and Prokofiev really captures that Russian Cold War feeling. I was quite keen because I'm a big Hitchcock fan and I watched a lot of the sort of early 60s Hitchcock movies and oh. I love those sort of Bernard Herrmann scores where they really go for it. I mean, <laughs> the opening cues on those films like that, you know, the title sequence of North by Northwest, it's sort of like announcing that something really major is about to happen and people don't really do that anymore. But he had that, and I think again, you know, he's a Polish guy and he doesn't have the reserve that some sort of Western composers have. He sort of really puts his heart into everything he does. And I really wanted that feeling for the film. And yeah, he was brilliant. I mean, it was a it was a tricky process because we were on you know, he was in Los Angeles, I was in London, and we didn't really get together apart from the very beginning and to record the music. So it's hard to work like that when you're that far away, but he delivered so brilliantly, I think, in the end. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if that wins an Oscar after it. It's just sensational. I think it's concert hall quality. fine composer he really is yeah and i loved well i love reading credits and i saw that two really good orchestras yeah uh, right. the city of prague philharmonic and the symphony of varsovia right yeah. yeah of course we shot a lot of in prague so it was really nice to go back and we recorded most of the classical stuff because there is classical stuff in the score as well we recorded that in Prague and then we went to uh, Warsaw for a longer period to record Abel's stuff. They were brilliant. And it was sort of helpful because he he's Polish, so there's that direct communication, which when you're speaking through a translator, we sort of lose something. So it sort of really was thrilling to be there to watch them all work together. They were quite something.
turns out that Oleg Penkovsky was the most valuable Soviet source ever recruited by the West. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the extent of the top-secret military documents he made available to the U.S. and the U.K.? Well, there were 5,000 of them. So it was still going, you know, the translation of those documents was still going on years after he'd uh, died. So it was a huge event for the West to get all this information. And it really, the reason why he was so significant was that there'd never been a Soviet spy at that level. You know, he really was right at the top of the system and he had access therefore to information that very few people had access to given that it was such a sort of secretive and hierarchical system. There's a really um, great book called The Spy Who Saved the World, which is the most accurate book about Pankowski. And it was written, I think, in the 90s. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the writer, sadly. But it was based on the CIA records, which had been sort of released at that time. So there's a huge amount of information in there. The KGB records have not been ever made public, so we don't really know what their side of the story is. But it was sort of all manner of information regarding all aspects of the Soviet military operation, which was huge, of course. It was a huge part of the state. And he sort of gave the West a lot of information which allowed them to, not only in Cuba, uh, I mean, you know, this information was the information that got to that got to Kennedy and allowed Kennedy to make the decision he made to sort of close in on, on Khrushchev. But there was all sorts of information that affected strategy in the West for a very long time. It sort of led to the downfall of Khrushchev because it was such a, a huge embarrassment for the state that someone at that level could have given away that much information to the West. Am I overthinking it? Is there a possible dual meaning to or dual application of the title? Was Pankowski as much of a courier as Greville Wynne? In some ways, yeah, in some ways he was. Absolutely he was, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about that title, because it wasn't the original title, but when it was suggested to me, I was really thrilled by it, because although it's quite sort of generic in one ways, it is nuanced in the context of the film. And it's sort of about, <laughs> it's about the sort of, on one level, the innocuous quality of being someone carrying information that you're not sort of parley to, but at the same time, you can never be neutral. <laughs> if you're involved in that kind of uh, mission, even if you don't, you're not reading the contents of the envelope, you know that you are. <laughs> involved in something extremely you're sort of knowingly playing a part so so there's sort of dualities I think in the title but absolutely he was yeah the very first draft of the script was slightly more balanced between the two the, the main work we did in the rewrites was sort of make it more wins film I mean only marginally but more about the sort of outside of the rookie going into this world there were Two lines that I know will remain with me a long time. One was when Pankowski says to the son of Grevelwin, the little boy, the little boy asks him, is it true you all hate us? And Pankowski says, our politicians hate your politicians, people like us. We don't hate each other. 
It was just so poignant. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. And the other was when Pankowski tells Greville when maybe we're only two people, but this is how things change. Yeah. Is that the essence of this story for you? Yeah, very much, yeah. And that's why we repeated that line at the very end of the movie. It is. It is absolutely about that. And um, it's, it's that's got a particular resonance now because there's so much sort of discussion around how we change things for the better in so many areas of our lives in the West, our political lives and our sort of social lives, the way we live together. And um, I don't think we should underestimate what one or two people can do. It's a simple lesson, but it's a really important one, I think. Film director Dominic Cook from our conversation in June. His spy thriller, The Courier with Benedict Cumberbatch, is available for streaming on most major platforms, including Amazon Prime and Apple TV. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta's own multi-talented Danielle Deadweiler stops by to tell us about her role as Miranda Carroll in the critically acclaimed HBO series Station Eleven. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.